Let's talk for a few minutes about the promises of God. Last week, we looked at um, the subject when God says, wait. And uh, tonight, I want to look for a few minutes on uh, when God makes a promise, which seems a little more positive than the concept of God's delay. And I'm thankful that God is a God of promises. Many of us, I'm sure you included, um, have been on the receiving end of a broken promise. How many of you have ever had somebody made you a promise and didn't follow through with it and you were hurt because of it? All of us have. In fact, of course, as a pastor, I deal with people that go through a lot of emotional turmoil in life. And what I have found through the years that when I meet someone who's consumed with bitterness uh, and living in personal hostility, it's usually because they are living in the wake of a broken trust. Trust has been violated in some way, shape, or form, and they're still not over it. Well, it's certainly possible that people are going to let you down. In fact, that probably just needs to be thrown out on the table. People are going to let you down. People are imperfect. That's why you have to learn. Ultimately, we, sh there, we need to learn to trust people. And there are people who are trustworthy without question. But ultimately, our allegiance and our loyalty and our trust has to be directed toward God. Because doctors will let you down. Lawyers will let you down. Preachers will let you down. But ultimately, our trust is in the Lord. And aren't you thankful that the Lord will never let you down? God is a God. With God, a promise made is always a promise kept. And throughout <clears throat> all of redemptive history, as we have it recorded in the Bible, our God is a God who has made many promises to his people. Sometimes a promise is bigger than another simply because of to whom it is given, how it is given, the reason for which it is given. Sometimes the promises of God have occurred at very strategic points in the development of his people, and he makes them for very strategic purposes. The kinds of promises that I'm thinking about tonight are often referred to with another word, and that is the word covenant. God is a God who makes promises, but God is a God who makes really big promises too at strategic points, and those really big promises are covenants. There are about six major covenants that you read about in the Bible. And we won't review all of them. God makes a covenant, of course, with Adam. God makes a covenant with David. God makes a covenant uh, with Moses. God makes a covenant with Abraham. But among the first of these covenants, of these solemn promises that God makes, is with our friend Noah. There is a covenant that God makes <clears throat> with the man who built the ark and who obeyed God until God settled the ark and instructed his family to come out of the ark onto dry ground. Look with me as we begin tonight in uh, Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my what? My covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you. So let's talk about that for a few minutes tonight, the covenant that God makes with Noah. There are three 
kind of general provisions to this covenant that God makes with Noah. And here's the thing. This covenant that God makes with Noah has everything to do with the subject of life. All of the provisions of the covenant have something to do with human life, which uh, shouldn't be all that surprising to you. I suppose in one sense it's surprising because God, except for Noah and his family, has just judged all human life out of existence. But God is very faithful to Noah. And God was blessed by the faithfulness of Noah. And so as a result, God makes a really big promise to and through the family of Noah that has everything to do with human life. And so he's going to tell, tell Noah how he's going to deal with and how he's going to provide for life in this new post-flood era, this new world order. Now, let me give you these uh, components of the covenant. There are three of them. The first is God's promise to preserve life. God makes this promise to preserve life twice in these verses in the latter part of chapter 8, first part of chapter 9. He makes kind of a promise to himself. It's kind of an oath. And then he makes a promise to Noah's family about how he's going to going forward preserve life rather than judge it in the same way ever again. Verse 21 of chapter 8. I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Okay, so this is God basically making an oath. But then notice in chapter 9 verse 11, God says directly to Noah, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood uh, to destroy the earth. So this is an unconditional promise. God's not asking Noah to do anything as a condition of God keeping the promise. It's unconditional, unqualified, unilateral from God to Noah. And all who would follow after Noah, never again will God judge the world by water. And that's an important phrase. Did you notice how many times I read it there? Never again, never again, never again, never again. God used it five times in these verses. And unlike us, can I make a statement tonight? When God says never, God means never. Never is one of those words, always and never. I try to be very careful about using them. Because they're extreme, aren't they? How many times have you said you always do something and then the very next day you turn right around and violate it? Or how many times have you said you're never going to do something, only down the road you'll find yourself doing it again? Let me tell you what, buddy, I'm never going to be like my daddy. Oh, you're going to be just like him. You just cursed yourself when you said that, right? How many of you have done that? I'm never going to talk to my kids the way my mother talked to us. And then everybody leaves the room and you talk just like your mama, you know. So we're very quick to throw around these words never and always. But man, when God says he's never going to do something again, God means it. Uh, we're we tend to be like Peter. Remember Peter? Very brash in terms of the way he used language, you know. He looked God in the face, looked Jesus in the face. 
and told him, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they turned right around, denied him three times, right? So you have to be very careful about that. God's always consistent, though. When he says never, he really does mean it. He means never because all of his promises are true, even when couched from the negative. Jesus, for example, used, he used that phrase never a lot. Jesus did. Whoever drinks of the water I give him will what? Never thirst. And never thirst means what? Never thirst. He who comes to me, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And never go hungry means what? He won't hunger again, not for spiritual things. If anyone keeps my word, Jesus said, he will never see death. Well, never means never, right? Whoever lives, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. That's right. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Aren't you glad for all those nevers? Negative word that we sometimes don't like, it's all over the Bible. And Jesus uses it as much, if not more, than anybody else. And I'm telling you, when it comes to salvation, knowing that God sometimes says never is a really good thing. I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Amen. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And so God does the same thing here with Noah. He gives him this promise, I will never again destroy the earth by flood. That's the promise. God does give Noah a command with that in mind. What does God tell Noah to do? I'm kind of jumping around to keep this in kind of a logical order rather than reading the entire text tonight, which would take several minutes. But look at chapter 9, verse 1. The command, or the promise rather, I will never judge the earth by water. Now, Noah, knowing that, here's the command, be fruitful and what? Multiply and fill the earth. Now, have we heard that before in the Bible? Okay, thank you very much. Of course you have. If you were here with me in my study, you better say yes. Because where does that show up? Genesis 1 and 2. That's right. That's the first command of the Bible. That's the first command God gives anybody after marriage. Be fruitful and multiply, right? Fill the earth and subdue it. And he gives the same command now in this new creation, this new world order, post-judgment. So very same command. And that's an important command because Noah, without this promise and without this command, Noah and his progeny may have had second thoughts about bringing children into the world. I mean, if you just saw what they saw, would you have second thoughts about bringing human life into the world? Who man. That was rough. And we may not be, we, we have no assurance that God may not do that again. We don't know what they're going to be like. This God, man, he doesn't like sin. And so they may have not pushed ahead with having children and filling the earth and populating the earth. Not only that, without this promise, um, I'm sure they would have spent a lot of time fretting every time a thunderhead rolled in to their community. Every time a nimbus cumuli 
began to form in the sky. That's a dark cloud if you don't speak Latin tonight. That's one of those black clouds, right? Cumulonimbus, the clouds that bring rain. And man, they just lived through a lot of rain. Can you imagine how shaky they would have been the next time a thunderstorm came into, you know, Judy and I have talked. Uh, We kind of live in a post-flood era here in Pensacola. Y'all remember the big flood, right? And you know, when it comes a gully washer, when it, when it rains and rains pretty steady for a couple of hours, we've often wondered, I wonder what those people are thinking that live in flood-prone areas. I wonder if they get skittish. I mean, some of those people were wiped out, man. Some in our church, right? So when it really starts to rain and rain and rain and rain, do you, you know, what do you, how do you cope with that? What do you think? Is it going through your mind? This might, do we need to go ahead and leave right now? Is it going to rain all night again like it did before? But yet God comes along. That's why this promise at this critical juncture is very important. He didn't want this Noah family to worry every every time raindrops kept falling on their head, even if it was heavy rain. And so, This is important for the real world that Noah was in. But here's the thing. Uh, In life, as we all know it, uh, real literal flood's still going to come. It's still going to flood. You'll get a really bad phone call in the middle of the night. Uh, You'll get an unexpected letter in the mail. Sheriff deputies show up at your front door. I mean, floods still happen, don't they? metaphorically speaking. And it's going to rain, the Bible says, on the just and on the unjust. So floods are going to come. Hard times will have to be endured. But the the point here is that the God who safely brought us through the judgment, God brought Noah's family through the judgment, and he says to them, I'm never going to subject you to that kind of flood again. And the same promise God makes to every one of us who know him by faith. I'm never going to take you through a flood of judgment ever again because Christ has been through the flood for you. Amen? Now, we'll stand at the judgment, but we won't come under judgment at the judgment. You know the difference between the two? One's a capital J, one's a small j. We'll stand at the judgment, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, But that's not to determine, for a believer, that's not to determine whether or not we get into heaven. We are in because Christ has taken the capital J judgment for us. And that's settled the score. Jim Locke knows the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. So you know what that means for me? I'm living eternal life right now. Whoever lives and believes in me right now will never die. Only the body dies. You don't die because you don't need a body to live. That's not the real you. It's only the shell. It's only temporary tent. So heaven is determined in this life, not at the judgment seat. Now, there'll be a review at the life, uh, at the judgment seat, for the purpose of how I'm going to spend eternity and what kind of experience I'm going to have and the rewards I'll experience in heaven. But I won't come under judgment. Does that make sense? Because Christ has taken the bullet for me. Somebody say amen tonight. He's taken the bullet. And so the promise, God looks at us when we're saved and he says, here's the deal. You have passed out of judgment unto everlasting life. Never again 
will you be subjected to a flood with a capital F? Everybody tracking with me tonight? So this is the first beautiful promise, uh, the first provision of God's covenant with Noah. It involves the preservation of life, God's promise to preserve life. A second provision of the covenant is God's promise to sustain life. He promises to preserve life. He promises to sustain life. That's also in the first part of chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants before the flood, I give you now, insert, now I give you everything. So there is a distinct lifestyle change that takes place here, particularly for Noah and his family. And that involves a relationship between human beings and the animal kingdoms because everything changed. You know, human, before the fall, humanity and animal life, all, everybody got along. Everybody was tiptoeing through the tulips together. And nobody was devouring flesh. They existed and subsisted as vegetarians, uh, eating what the earth produced naturally and organically. So flesh wasn't consumed. But all that changed after the flood. There's a chance. I mean, animals post-flood are now instinctively fearful of human beings. And that's because, you know, I think part of the reason for that is that there aren't very many human beings. Which reproduces faster, animals or humans, generally speaking? Animals do. And so animals are going to get out of control real fast on the earth. And so what God does is he turns Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth into hunters and all the hunters at Hillcrest, and we got a bunch of them, just resounded with a loud amen at that point. And so now uh, the animals flee. There's a skittishness. And uh, now in this post-flood era, um, animals can be consumed for nutritious purposes and for uh, food. And, uh, you know, Here's the thing. There's this great principle that we still live under today, and that is that human life is only perpetuated through the death of something else. You all have heard me say this before. Some, something had to, I mean, I, I was teasing somebody a minute ago. You know, we're going to talk about now how we are free to eat flesh. And uh, on all the nights I'm going to talk about that, we have manicotti and vegetables at Hillcrest. And then somebody reminded me, wait a minute, there's a little meat in that sauce. And I said, okay, great. We didn't have a complete vegetarian dinner tonight uh, at Hillcrest. But life's only made possible through the death of another creature. I mean, we're alive in part because something died to sustain us. And that's true. Be it an animal or a plant or whatever, life is perpetuated by life. Something else has to die for another thing to live. And that's true spiritually. That was true for Israel. That's why you had the sacrificial system. Shedding of blood covered over sin. Without the shedding of blood, no forgiveness of sin. Life for life. God's been offended. God demands life. But God in his grace redirects his wrath away from the offending sinner 
by providing a system of substitution. In the Old Testament, it was an animal substitute. Their blood will be shed and sprinkled as a substitute so that my justice is satisfied because I don't just wink at sin and I can instead offer the human forgiveness because my judgment has been averted to the substitute. And of course, that's applied to all of us through the death of Jesus Christ, the once for all sacrifice, as the writer to the Hebrews says. Our substitute is Jesus. Jesus said in John 6, 51, I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats or consumes of this bread, he will live, how long? Forever. And the bread that I will give, uh, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, Jesus isn't speaking in literalisms there. He's speaking spiritually because what does it mean to feed on Christ? Well, to feed on Christ or to consume Christ is to trust Christ. Christ is taken into our lives eternally, not by eating his literal flesh. He comes into our life internally by faith. His spirit moves in and takes up residence in our lives. And we draw spiritual nourishment and spiritual strength through the Christ who now resides within. So consuming Christ has everything to do with faith. It's not a literalism. And so God's covenant with Noah involves both the preservation of human life and the sustaining of human life. And God's promise to us also involves that. God, we're still free. There are no food laws today. Christ abrogated those food laws. We are free. Acts 10 and 11, it's okay. Maybe next week we'll have barbecue here at Hillcrest. And if we have barbecue, you're not violating any scriptural law uh, by eating that meat, no matter what kind of meat it is. And spiritually, God's made promises to us to sustain us spiritually now and forever through the indwelling Christ that we receive by faith. Does everybody understand with me tonight the scope of the promise of this covenant? God has promised to preserve life. God has promised to sustain life. And then third, God makes a promise in this covenant to protect life, to protect life, which may be the main point of the covenant. Uh, The primary point of the covenant, I think, is to show Noah and us by extension that human life is God's property. It's God's property. Man may be an authority. Man has authority over the animals and over the animal kingdom. We have dominion, tend the earth, keep it, fill the earth and subdue it was part of God's original design to Adam. And then we still have, in the, in the new world order, we have dominion over the animal life. But that doesn't mean we got the right to do whatever we want to with another human life. That's a matter totally distinct. And God makes it very clear here that human life lies within my purview. Now, we, of course, live in a culture that doesn't value life very highly at all. Our culture tends to devalue the sanctity of human life. But God says to take the life of another 
callously or flippantly always comes with grave dangers. I told you all on a Sunday morning several weeks ago of a video that somebody was circulating around on YouTube and, uh, or not on YouTube, one of the social media outlets, Twitter maybe. And it was taken from the Netherlands and I was just in the Netherlands, not just but a few weeks ago. One wonderful country, uh, lots of history, but they do weird things over there. They have, you know, unusual legal system and unusual social values and cultural mores. And this is, of course, a place where uh, the Nazis overran very easily during World War II and a place where many Jews were rounded up and Frank uh, was and her family was sheltered there in Amsterdam in the attic. We went to the Anne Frank house, and I may never get back to Amsterdam the rest of my life, and the best I could do was a picture outside the front door of the Anne Frank house. We couldn't get in. The tickets were already sold out. They didn't sell tickets at the door. You had to get them online. We found out about that the night before, we thought you'd just be able to walk up and go through it because it was in the dead of winter, rainy day, cold. We thought, ain't nobody going to be at the Anne Frank house. The place was packed. And we found out the night before, you got to go online and get tickets. And for whatever reason, we went on, Barlow went on, I, it rejected every credit card we have. It just would not let us buy tickets online. We just couldn't do it for whatever reason. Maybe it wasn't a secure site. I don't know. But this was a place where Nazis were rounded up. And you go to museums there where they were loaded onto trains, shipped to concentration camps. How interesting, the video that was going around on the social media outlet had a professor standing in front of a whiteboard with a young man who had, he was probably a young teenager, late adolescent, with Down syndrome. Now, we got some Down syndrome kids in our church. He had Down syndrome, and his father was standing there with him. And the university professor was going through this formulaic explanation of how much it was costing the citizens of the Netherlands to support that young man up to that point, and then assuming he lived to a certain age for the rest of his life. And he went through all these algorithms and all of these figures and came down to a final number. I don't remember what the number was. 676,000 dollars, 352. You know, whatever. It was some round figure. This is how much you are costing your friends and neighbors and people that don't even know you. Does that just make you sick at your stomach? The fact that you can try to reduce that young man's life to a dollar figure or to a euro figure. Well, of course, you know, they practice euthanasia all the time. Some doctor just decides, you know what, you've lived a full life. It's going to cost a lot of money to keep you alive for another four, five, six years. And we're just not going to do it. Let's just pull the plug. It's crazy. I mean, that's abhorrent. To us, unless you live in Washington or Oregon, where some of that is kind of working its way into the mainstream. 
And so it's another reminder that even though our culture and our society tends to become very callous toward human life, whenever it's not perfect, as somebody else, of course, defines perfect, God is a God who values humanity. He's a God who loves life. And he says, when you take another human life casually, that always comes with grave dangers. Look at verse 5 of chapter 9 here. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning, a reckoning. The New International Version uses the word accounting. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning, an accounting for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now let me just say that the Bible does not teach it. It's never wrong to take another human life. There are just times where you do that. Where there is just war. Uh, that's not a violation of the command not to murder. The Bi you know, we're so used to the King James translation, thou shall not kill. Kill is too broad a word. The, the text is used a very specific word that's better translated as many of the modern translations do, murder. Thou shall not murder. Everybody hear me? The Bible does not say thou shall not kill. It says thou shall not murder. And there's different between the two. So that allows for a just war. It also allows for capital punishment. Uh, that doesn't mean you have to like it. Uh, I wouldn't want to be the one to pull a switch. Um, but I do think that the Bible allows for that. In fact, that's the whole purpose of civil government, or at least one of the purposes of civil government. God establishes a principle here under the authority of civil government. And that's what it means here in verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Life for life. For God made man in his image. And then you come to the New Testament. And, of course, the great passage of government. You have to remember that before the flood, there was no civil government. And that was part of the problem. You remember the passage in Romans 13 where Paul is talking about being in subjection to the civil governing authorities because God is the one who institutes the government. And they'll give an accounting. But basically, Paul's point is, here's the deal. I recognize that some governments are bad governments. Would you agree with that? But the biblical point is, even bad government is better than no government at all. You don't know what bad is until you're living in true and complete anarchy where everybody makes it up as they go along. Everybody does what's right in their own. That was life before the flood, and that's why the world got judged. And so Paul comes along in Romans 13 and says there in verse 4, for the governing authority is God's servant for your good. He's still God's servant, even though he may claim to be an atheist. I wouldn't want to be that guy standing before God. I wouldn't want to be Stalin. I wouldn't want to be Hitler. I wouldn't want to be any of those guys. Ceausescu, Idi Amin. I mean, name your favorite dictator. 
They tried to do it apart from God in this life and they, they made a hell on earth for a lot of people. But every single one of them got to an ultimate moment where they realized I was God's servant the whole time. And I think I'm now in big trouble. And they were. The governing authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do what? If you do wrong, be afraid. For he, the governing authority, does not what? Bear the sword in vain. In other words, that governing authority has the right to punish. And you have to have that for an ordered society. He's the servant of God, an avenger. Now, this is New Testament right here, folk. An avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, and that's important because the issue here, really, when you think about it, that's important because we read that and they think, okay, this is great because that's a deterrence to crime. Yes, it is. But that's not the primary point. The primary point, even in that statement, is to remind us that the primary issue is the protection of life and the protection of livelihood in a civil society. And once again, the purpose is to impress on all of us that human life belongs to God. And it's incredibly valuable to God because he's the giver of life and the lives that he gives he creates in his own image. Now, many have lost that attitude today. Our country's how old? 230-something years old? What's 2018 from 1776? Y'all are as bad as math that I am, man. 240, okay, real good. 240, I was close. And we fought in 240 years in about 10 major wars. And we have seen American men and women die in those 10 major wars uh, to the number of somewhere between a million and a half, two million people in 240 years. That's how many people we've lost on the battlefield. About half a million in World War II, a little bit less than that in World War I, 58,000 in Vietnam. I don't know the, the rest. But about 2 million in 10 major wars in 240 years. We abort a million and a half babies a year. million and a half a year, at least a million and a half. It may be way more than that because the records aren't that accurate. And they never have a chance. Billion-dollar interest uh, industry in this country. It's big money, big money, and that's why it's at the forefront all the time. It's big money. And the thing that blows my mind is that so many really believe that God is not bothered by that at all. Not at all. I was reading an uh, article that came out in the Washington Post uh, about a month ago, and it was a, an article that had a picture of a group of clergymen and clergywomen wearing, well, I don't look much like a clergyman tonight. They looked like clergymen. They had the collars on and the regalia and the flowing robes and all of that. And they're out in front of uh, an abortion clinic 
a particular abortion clinic that still practices late-term or partial birth abortions. And so I thought, okay, I'm getting ready to read an article about a group of men and women of God who are standing firm, you know, for the... They were there invoking the blessing of God on the clinic. They were liberal clergymen and women. And praying for God to bless the clinic. They had previously been inside the clinic, some of them of a particular persuasion, blessing each of the rooms with holy water, sprinkling holy water on the rooms, and asking God, quote, sanctify this space and honor this room as holy. I'm quoting directly from the article. I believe it was Jan uh, uh, January 30th, the Washington Post. Just go out there and Google when you get home tonight. Type in uh, clergy praying at Bethesda, Maryland abortion clinic, and you'll get the article. And so they're asking the Lord inside, and then they came out, and the picture that was in the paper was of them gathered outside, and one of the ministers prayed for the doctors and the nurses who performed the abortions and for the women who'd had them. And I'm all for praying for people. But this particular clergyman was asking God to keep them safe and to keep them going strong. And may they all, I'm quoting from the article, and may they always know that all they do is for thy glory. Can you believe that? That's a 30-day-old news article out of the Washington Post of clergy people in front of a Bethesda, Maryland clinic. Now, you know, in an audience like ours, that just seems so ridiculous to us, even, you know, contemptible from a biblical point of view because life is precious. And life is to be celebrated. Life's to be treasured. And we should respect it for what it is. Life is not a choice. Life is a gift. It's a God-given gift. And that includes life in the womb. And so these are the provisions of God's covenant with Noah. Every single one of them has to do with life in some form or fashion. God's promised to preserve life. God has promised to sustain life. And God has promised to protect life. And there will be a reckoning for those who abuse life in the womb or out of it in ways that the Bible does not condone. But there's an additional dimension with this we're done tonight. One last thing about the covenant I think that should be said, because if I don't say it, y'all are going to be coming up to me afterwards saying, why didn't you talk about this? And that is, of course, the sign of the covenant. Look at verse 12 of chapter 9. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now, y'all remember that whenever God made a covenant with people, 
he would customarily give them some visible sign. And the purpose of the sign was as a reminder because we tend to have very good forgetters, right? And so sometimes we need visuals to remind us. Now with Abraham, what was the sign of the covenant with Abraham? What was the physical sign of the covenant that God gave to Abraham and all of his progeny? Say it again. Circumcision, that's right. You all think it's a four-letter word. It's a Bible word. Circumcision, a unique mark that identified those men as belonging to God and holy and separated unto God. So that was a sign. We might add a very painful sign, but a sign nonetheless. Uh, With Moses... Who remembers what the sign of the covenant with Moses was? It's part of the law. What did the Jews do once a week on a particular day of the week? Yeah, they did nothing. It's called the Sabbath day. The Sabbath was a what? It was a sign. It was a sign, just like circumcision, just like baptism is for us. It's a sign. Well, nobody else takes time to do nothing from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. This is a unique people. This is an unusual people. These people say that God told them to do this. They're the only people that do it. So the Sabbath was a sign of the Mosaic covenant. And with Noah and his generation, what was the sign? Yeah, the, the rainbow. Literally just the bow. We put the word rain in there. It's not in the Hebrew. It's just the bow. And it's a beautiful picture because, you know, the the clouds are breaking up and against the darkness of the clouds. You know, usually when you see a rainbow, there's usually always still a dark cloud in the sky somewhere, right? And it's helpful because if that dark cloud wasn't there, if there's not some little darker backdrop, you won't be able to see the rainbow. And so against the, the breaking up of the darkness of the clouds, God gives them this sign of the rainbow so that whenever people would see it, they would remember that God is a God who makes promises. They would remember that God has promised, I'm never again going to destroy you by water. You never have to worry about flooding. You may have some floods, but you'll have small F floods. You won't have capital F floods because with capital F flood, everybody dies. So I'm not going to do that. Anymore, And every time they saw that bow, it would be a visible reminder. You know what? God's promised that we're now in the pre or the post-flood world. And he's going to take care of us. And the word that literally is translated rainbow here is a word that means, it, it, it literally is the same word that uh, is used for an archer's bow, a warrior's bow. And that's what God has done. God has taken his instrument of judgment And he's hung it in the sky and he's turned it into a symbol of peace. Not just a symbol of peace, but a physical reminder that he's guaranteed peace. God's hung up his bow and the hostilities are over. And this is the power of the promise of God. God is a God who makes promises. God is a God who commits to promises. He makes many promises and they're all real and not one of them will ever fail. And it's great to know that in a very uncertain world where the letdowns are plenty, 
and where disappointment often happens, we can remember this eternal truth. When God makes a promise, when God says he's going to do something, God can be trusted to do it. Amen. And God has promised to you and to me the gift of everlasting life and the protection from eternal judgment. He doesn't require us to do anything. He simply asks us to trust him in what he's done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I hope you've done that. I hope you know that you're safe and secure. And I hope you have the promise of God tonight that because Jesus belongs to you and you belong to Jesus, that never again will you come under the condemnation of certain death. It's God's promise to you. Let's rejoice in it tonight. This is God's word and let all who agree say amen.